Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. So, Robert, when I was five years old, I made a huge mistake. I thought it would be a good idea to read Peter Benchley's novel, Jaws, while I was on vacation with my family on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. which is generally where Jaws is supposed to be set. I think, what do they call it in the movie? Is it Amity? Something like that. I believe so, yes. Yeah. So I was terrified of going in the ocean the entire time that I was visiting the family there. And uh, my father's side of the family, they're all you know, uh, ocean dwellers, basically. They're like fishermen and they wanted to go out and, and go out on the boat and do fishing and stuff. And I was just terrified the whole time. Like I wouldn't get in the water. Uh, and it was a big mistake. So sharks have been scary to me for a long time. I think Jaws 3D was the first scary shark movie that I ever saw. Uh, what about you? Oh, you know, I, I can't remember when I, Jaws is one of those films that since they, they played it on TV all the time, I think I just absorbed it, uh, yeah. long before I ever actually gave it a, a start to finish viewing. But, uh, on top of that, I, I, I feel like my life has been filled with just absorption of, of multiple bad shark movies over the years, you know? Um, yeah. most of them Jaws knockoffs because there's just a tremendous wealth of, of terrible, often like Italian and Spanish, uh, Jaws ripoffs. And there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Uh, because in this episode, as we talk about sharks and as we, uh, we talk to, uh, Mara Hart, author of Sex and the Sea about sharks, and we get into shark conservation and shark week and, uh, and, and these other issues, you know, we talk about how we villainize them and we focus on their ferocious nature. And certainly all of these monster movies do that. But then you also you get into this idea of like what are we what are we doing with these shark stories? Like is there this there's this weird kind of uh, like fetishization of giant uh, sea carnivores like eating bikini women? I I I always find it like strangely perverse. Yeah, there is a weird thing going on there. I wonder if you can trace the origin of that back to the the creature of the Black Lagoon. Maybe that's another episode. But <laughs> there is a fascination with uh, like predatory underwater creatures uh, eating human women for some reason. But I want to point out, though, we do this thing outside of the podcast that not all of our listeners know about called Trailer Talk, yeah. where once a week we go on Facebook Live, you, me, and Joe, and we put together a bunch of trailers from usually bad horror movies or sci-fi movies across the years related to whatever topic we're talking about on the podcast that week. Man, we're going to have fun with this one <laughs> because – there's a whole wiki entry just on killer shark films, and it's like 50 films long. Yeah, it's it's insane how many. And again, most of these are really essentially just Jaws knockoffs. Yeah, and they just made one after the other, just ad nauseum. And most of them do not have a creative idea uh, added to it. Occasionally, you're across a film like I believe it's what Lucio Fulci's Zombie, where you have that wonderful scene where a zombie fights a shark underwater. <laughs> I haven't um, seen that. We'll have to oh, pull yeah, that it's, one. We'll, we'll have to work with. Uh, with Ramsey, our producer on that, to to edit it because I think there's a little nudie in that one. Okay, because uh, like a, because it's a shark fighting a zombie, and there's like a topless lady swimming. Oh, jeez. You know? Okay, this is the this is the level this, of yeah. cinematic um, 
art that we were dealing with. Well, the one that I always think of that's not Jaws that I always keep returning to, and I know it's a favorite of Joe's because he talks about it a lot, Mm -hmm. is Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. Uh, It's got that fabulous LL Cool J music video connected to it. Uh, but it also stars, uh, my favorite sci-fi heartthrob that we've talked about on the show before, Thomas Jane. Oh yeah, he was in that. I yeah. always forget. He, uh, if I remember correctly, he perfects a method for swimming with sharks where he like grabs their fins and rides them. It's, ah. it's very weird. Huh. We should rewatch that for the, for the Facebook Live. But for today's episode, Really, what our focus is going to be on is the opposite of these killer shark movies. And that's what we end up talking to Mara about is that really, while we've fetishized these sharks as killing machines, they're more life machines than anything else. They have a variety of ways of reproducing and making sure that their genetic heritage is passed on. Indeed. I mean, there's just so much more going on with sharks beyond just their, their gnashing teeth and, uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're chomping at, uh, cages with divers in them. Uh, and that's what we hope to really ultimately reflect in this, in this episode today. So before we, before we get into the interview with Mara, uh, we thought we would just give a little bit of setup here. So for starters, what are sharks? Well, this is one of those areas where you see them in films and on TV enough. You think you know. Yeah. But, uh, but there, when you actually start breaking it down, it's, it's really fascinating. So sharks date back to the, uh, to the Ordovician period, 450 to 420 million years ago. This was before land vertebrates existed and before many plants had colonized the continents. So sharks are older than dinosaurs. In the grander scheme of sharks. Now, modern sharks, sharks as we know them, these only go back around 100 million years. Only. Yeah. <laughs> but they are, so they are, they are established players in, in the sea. Yeah. And of course, uh, one of the other, if you, if you know very little about sharks, one thing you probably know for sure is that they, they don't have, um, hard bones. They have, uh, cartilage, right? They're members of the class chondrichthys, and, uh, this includes other, um, uh, cartilage-based fishes as well, rays, etc. Uh, and, uh, as we talk tomorrow, she's gonna end up referencing some of these, uh, shark kin as well. Yeah, they're related. It, it keeps coming up in, in our notes as well. So speaking of Mara, Mm-hmm. Who's Mara? Oh, yeah. Well, Mara Hart, she is a coral reef ecologist by training, and she's currently a research co-director for Future of Fish uh, Flip Labs. So uh, Mara assists uh, entrepreneurs and innovators with finding solutions to the global overfishing crisis. And her past work includes ecological, historical, and social science research on a range of topics, uh, you know, from fisheries to climate change impacts on ocean life. And she's the author of this wonderful book that we've talked about on the show before, Sex in the Sea, Our Intimate Connection with Sex-Changing Fish, Romantic Lobsters, Kinky Squid, and Other Salty Erotica of the Deep. Yeah, in fact, Mara has been a guest with us twice before this. She is so much fun to talk to because she's so passionate about this stuff and really down to earth about it at the same time. So I feel like she's just so great at communicating marine biology. We've talked to her about... Uh, let's see, Osadax worms mm-hmm. and then uh, coral reefs last year. Yes. And so we figured, hey, Shark Week's coming up. This is the time of year when people are thinking about sharks. But why don't we spin this in a different light? Because while, yes, they're scary and we have developed this entire, like, fear culture around them, they are incredibly weird when it comes down to how they mate and how they reproduce baby sharks. 
So, all right, let's just start off with some facts about shark reproduction. Sexually, in sharks, they begin with the production of sperm and eggs. But here's the thing. They don't always coincide. So determining when a female can get pregnant gets tricky. And we talk about this in the interview with Mara, especially because they have that internal fertilization system. The females can actually save sperm from a sexual encounter with a male shark. And that produces a limited number of offspring per cycle. Now, while some small sharks will lay eggs on the ocean floor, large sharks will give birth. So I want to give some clarity between three different kinds of sexual reproduction with sharks. The first is called oviparity, and this is when sharks lay eggs on an ocean floor. And these eggs are encased in a leathery egg case that's called a mermaid's purse. That's a very nice little name for yeah. for, for what I imagine is like an alien egg. That's what it, it, I'm picturing in my head as like face hugger egg. <laughs> Uh, it takes between six to nine months for them to hatch, and they have features like tendrils, horns, and sticky mucus filaments. So these are not pretty eggs. Well, uh, <laughs> I've, I've seen them. They, they have their own sort of – They have a charm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the reason why they have all these things is they help the eggs stick to the seabed. It's not just like a, a fashion statement. <laughs> it's part of adhering to the ocean floor. So the second kind is – Ova viviparity. And this is when sharks carry the eggs in their body. So instead of actually having, you know, laying the eggs and having the mermaid's purse come out, they are in thin membrane coverings inside the mother shark. Now, in some species, baby sharks will stay inside the mother even after they hatch. And they will swim around inside the mother eating unfertilized eggs. We talk about this at length with Mara with regard to uh, sand tiger sharks in particular. But this practice actually has a name. (laughs) And this is sharks get the best names for things. Oophagy. That's the, that's the name for when these baby sharks hatch and eat their unfertilized, uh, eggs surrounding them. Then you've got the third kind, which is viviparity. And this is when a shark gives a live birth with no eggs. It's very similar to mammalian reproduction, except the fact that the pups, which is what you refer to baby sharks as, are immediately independent and they've got to fend for themselves after birth. So there's no like a like a training session where like the 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 pups hang around with the mother for a long time afterwards and learn the ways of the ocean. They're just on their own. Right. And we'll discuss this at length with Mara in the uh, the interview. And another thing we talked to Mara about is sharks asexual reproduction. So this is something we've just been learning about in the last couple of years. There are a few types of sharks that are known to be able to reproduce without having a male fertilize their eggs. And the process is known as parthenogenesis. Uh, the kinds of sharks that we know about right now that can do this are the bonnet head, which is a type of hammerhead, the black tip, and zebra sharks. Now, the first one of these was recorded in captivity in 2001 in Nebraska, of all places, Nebraska's aquarium. The baby shark, the pup, was actually killed by another fish shortly after birth. But at first, this was thought to be another case of the sharks storing the sperm so they could fertilize their eggs later. But testing reveals that some of these cases, actually the DNA is 
only the mothers. So it indicates that there's asexual reproduction going on. And we talked to Mara at length about this and with the, you know, kind of the, the positives and negatives for female sharks on this. Other vertebrate species that can do this include turkeys, Komodo dragons, snakes, and rays. And in fact, eagle rays and boa constrictors are the only other species that have done this in captivity. So the process itself is something that we'll talk about with Mara. It's it's fairly uncommon in a species when they've already had sex, though. And sharks, the other thing that's kind of interesting about their sexual and asexual reproduction is that they can switch back and forth. So this is kind of a last resort tactic when they can't find another mate. It's not something that they're doing all the time. Now, Fun fact, and Mara briefly mentions this, but let's try to describe it uh, here so that you have a better idea going into this interview. Male sharks actually have two – they're not penises, but let's call them penises in quotes. They're called claspers, and these are grooved organs that deposit their sperm and develop along the inner margin of each of their pelvic fins. And Mara clarified for us off air, these are not separate organs. They are part of the fin itself. But they only use one of these at a time for sex. And an inserted clasper's tip will unfold and anchor in a female. And it uses these spike-like clasper spurs to do so. It just sounds generally kind of awful. Yeah, there, there's a definitely a violent... Uh violent nature to shark reproduction and that's that's one of the things that we'll talk about with uh, with Mara at length um and and actually how it ends up playing into reproductive strategies for uh, uh for the shark species yeah absolutely so okay so we've got sexual reproduction whether it's laying eggs on the floor, carrying the eggs in their body, or giving live birth. Then you've also got this asexual reproduction. You've got these males swimming around with two penises that have barbs on them. How could it get any weirder? Well, it turns out that the sand tiger shark actually has cannibalistic babies inside of it. Oh, yeah. And we will talk with Mara at length about this. I, I like to refer to these as a, in, in honor of Chud, one of our <laughs> favorite movies here at Step to Blow Your Mind. I'm going to call these Sud, cannibalistic shark underwater dwellers. Ooh, well, in the same tradition of Chud, where you have the, um, uh, have it stand for different things. Yeah. I would say you could also have it, uh, stand for cannibalistic shark, uh, utero dwellers. Oh, perfect. Know? Yeah, that's perfect. Why? We're going to go into this at length with Mara, but we're going to give you a little bit of a primer. Brace yourselves. This one, this is rough. So in this species of shark, there's actually only eight to ten embryos, but only one will survive birth. And this is per uterus in these sharks because these sharks have two uteri. They have a right one and a left one. And the way that they survive is by eating all of their unborn brothers and sisters. Uh, and this is a whole process called adelphophagy that we're going to talk about uh, at length with Mara. But basically the idea here is that these the first – baby that's born uh breaks out swims around and eats in a quote kill now consume later fashion uh they basically kill all their siblings and then for weeks afterwards devour uh their siblings inside their mother so that they're born really big they're born at like three feet long all right well we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to jump right into the interview with sex in the sea author mara j hart 
Well, uh, well, first of all, thanks for taking time out of your day to, to chat with us again, to, to come back on the, the program and discuss uh, uh, some mar- marine biology. First, we just I guess, want to know, how's your summer going? What are you working on? <laughs> uh, my summer is going well, and I'm, I'm working on a whole bunch of stuff. So um, for Future of Fish, where I work full-time, I'm digging in. We're trying to make seafood supply chains more traceable. So that's very exciting and has to do with a lot of trying to curb some of the, the issues we have in the seafood world. And then on the sex in the seaside, I'm working Right now, I'm actually trying to figure out how our uh, current administration's new tactics are, are going to be affecting uh, sex in the sea. So, uh, for example, um, President Trump just opened the Atlantic to oil and, or wants to open it to um, offshore drilling again. And um, they use these massive sound arrays to do that. And there's some big concerns about how how those exploration activities affect marine life and um sound in particular can be really disruptive for sex. So, yeah, trying to work my way through um, trying to explain what some of those those impacts may be so that we can maybe uh, ward off some of the worst of them. Wow. I hadn't even considered that. Yeah. So are you working like an, on an article or something along yeah, those lines? Exactly. Great. Let us know when it's published. Thank you. I will. It's uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating because and, and it's a really interesting situation because you have it's not you know, it's not down the normal political line because you actually have a lot of industry, the commercial fisheries, the um, tourism industry. So a lot of the businesses are saying, hey, wait a minute, when you go out and do this, it like scatters the fish for weeks or it disrupts certain spawning habitat and spawning events. So they don't come back and you miss a season and that can really mess up things for the future. So it's a very, very interesting um, dynamic. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly what what we can maybe be doing about it and yeah, just kind of raise the alarm uh, for a terrible sound pun, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's my summer and chasing kids around and trying to make sure they have sunscreen on (laughs) those kind of things. Well, speaking of uh, sort of taglines and slogans and all, one of the um, Mm -hmm. sort of slogans we were kicking around for this episode, this is Christian's creation, so I I can't take credit for it, but we are thinking sharks, uh, life machines, not death machines. Yeah, cause, I love it. Cause it, they, it seems like just as much as people obsess over the, you know, sharks as these killing machines, especially around this time of year with Shark Week, that, uh, mm-hmm. when you do the research and you, and you look at their reproductive system, it's like no matter what, these things are going to make babies. So yes, in the sense that they're extremely diverse in how they do it across Across the animals known as sharks, um, and especially then if you throw in rays, the diversity of reproduction is amazing. But some species and some of their strategies are really, really vulnerable to disruption. So they'll make babies for sure, but they don't make a lot of them. They're right. not like fish. Mm. And that's the big thing that I think a lot of people miss. Um, and it's understandable. You think a shark is, is like a fish, but they're actually... They separated, you know, almost half a billion years ago. So it's um they've been on a very different path and their and their reproduction reflects that and it can't it can't handle it can't handle the same kind of level of, of pressure from fishing and they're really susceptible to um other yeah, other impacts too. So yes, though I like the title in the sense that it reflects that they they really are 
an extremely diverse group when it comes to reproduction, you can find everything from egg laying all the way through live birth and tons of really weird stuff in between. So I wonder if a lot of the branding that sharks get, especially, you know, especially the great whites and and, and some of these more cinematic sharks, uh, we brand them as so ferocious that we uh, we just lose sight of the fact that, that their their place in the ecosystem could be so, so ultimately fragile. Absolutely. And nature is a dynamic balance, right? So there's always things that are trying to grow more and, and increase their population and increase their offspring. And then there are factors that come in and make sure that no species overtakes everything, right? It's, it's, oh, that's what an ecosystem is. It's all of these opposing forces of prey and predator, um, of reproduction and death <laughs> that keep everything kind of at a level that's in, in some sort of balance. And that doesn't mean it's um, frozen. It just means that it's balanced. But if you take all of that predatory pressure away, if you did remove these big predators, which is what in the ocean we tend to do, um, which is opposite, right, to on land. In the ocean, we eat all the big stuff, the tuna, the sharks, grouper, snapper. These are all predatory species, cod. They're all the top predators. You remove that, and then there's nothing to keep in check the, the growth of these smaller types of species that are meant to grow fast and reproduce fast so that they can deal with that predation. And so then they kind of spin out of control and it throws the whole system out of balance. So sharks are really, really important um, in terms of keeping an ecosystem in the ocean healthy. And um, we've hit them pretty hard. I think the number is about 100 million sharks are taken out of the water that we know of by commercial fisheries each year. And then, of course, there's a lot of illegal uh, fishing for sharks as well. So, yeah, they're really important and they're really cool. Again, they're a really ancient, very distinct lineage. They're, they, they're, they're just rad in terms of the stuff that they do. Um, and it's, we don't see it anywhere else. Uh, so for just simple diversity sake and fascination sake, uh, they're amazing. Yeah, I think from our perspective, like doing the research uh, leading up to this, all the variety of ways that they reproduce are so unique and odd. It's just shocking to me yeah. that that's not the stuff that is in the headlines, you know, or that like I know, is featured right? in Shark Week versus all the other things. It should things. just be Shark Sex Week. Yeah, do a yeah. Whole week on it. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it would be so rad. It would be so rad. Um, yeah, and it goes on and on, and there's still so much we're figuring out. But they really, yeah, they really, really do. And some stuff is so similar to mammals. It really starts to kind of um, mirror what, what we think of in our own um, kind of group of animals. And then they do stuff, you know, way on the other end that's more like chicken and fish, you know, laying eggs and having um, a, a totally different strategy there. So, and everything, yeah, in between and then off on tangents that, we don't see on land. Well, in particular, I, uh, I think you're referring to to live birth there, correct? Yeah. I mean, little baby sharks are born with belly buttons, just like <laughs> we are, which is really cool. Uh, they're called umbilical scars, and they do actually heal up and go away. So it's huh. slightly different. In in many species, especially it's, it's in the larger sharks, so the ones actually people tend to be more familiar with, the, the uh, mothers give birth to live young, uh, and they have a umbilical cord it's attached to a placenta the, the way the placenta works in sharks is different it's not attached to the female and connected to the female in the same way 
but it is a very energy intense process for the female to deliver these these young and um, they're born one at a time live from the mother and they sort of unlike mammals though are born fully functional and ready to swim off so there's no maternal care um, in fact they they sort of come out of her and will swim very rapidly to break free of their umbilical cord and then they they swim off and that's it but um the process of pregnancy she is carrying inside her yeah developing embryos and live fetuses and then they take off so it's it's pretty neat and they're they're really cute and they're born i love baby baby sharks are adorable <laughs> they really are uh, this, uh, and strong. <laughs> uh, this reminds me, uh, uh, Joe and I recently, uh, recorded an episode where we talked about, uh, various sort of fossil action scenes and, uh, ichthyosaurs came up, uh, some of the, uh, <laughs> nice. the, the live births that uh, are attributed to them. And yes. I was, I was really struck and I'm, I'm struck now thinking about the sharks as well, that you have all these different forms of, of large predatory, uh, aquatic creatures and they, they all sort of evolve into, sort of similar forms, you know, they, 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 and, and end up depending on live birth. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but it's true. And I know there's one or two amazing fossils that show in the ichthyosaur, like the, the, isn't there like one where you can see the baby inside? Mm -hmm. Yes, I believe so. I feel like so. I've seen that somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah, it is amazing. And I think, you know, part of the strategy there is that it it is very um, resource intense for the female, but once those pups are born, their likelihood of survival is very, very high. So they sort of are getting them through that um, that early stage of um, sort of mass mortality that, that fish larvae occur. You know, fish are putting out millions and millions and a very, very small percentage of those eggs will ever be fertilized. And then a very, very small percentage will ever grow to become an adult. Whereas in sharks, yeah, it's a, it's a different approach. It's put a little bit more time and energy into into rearing inside the, the young. But it also has to do with just internal fertilization, right? So it's this fundamental difference between being able to brood your young internally in the female body, be able to fertilize the eggs inside the female, which again has some advantages in the sense of making sure that there's less space, um, less diffusion. And so it, it could just be um, a result of that is, is one of the ways that internal fertilization works well is that you have the potential to rear live young. But again, in sharks, you see also internal fertilization leading to egg laying or this in-between where the females will have eggs, but the eggs are kept inside the female for quite a long time so that by the time she lays the eggs, there's only a couple of days before they hatch. So again, you have all of these different kind of gradations in, in terms of how they do it. But it is neat that you're right that um, we see this in other large predators in the ocean too in terms of the live birth. This reminds me actually, and I haven't told Robert this yet, uh, one of our colleagues here, Holly Fry, who hosts our history show, I was talking to her about this the other day. She used to be a volunteer at our local aquarium. And she was saying mm -hmm. that that's how she learned about the internal fertilization process is that she was working with one of the sharks there and it spontaneously started giving birth. And she was like yeah. completely surprised. <laughs> and the marine biologists mm -hmm. there at the aquarium were like, no, this is cool. It's okay. Like this is a thing that happens with sharks. Yeah. 
<laughs> yep, yep, and and it is. It's it's amazing um, because it's not what again, especially if you think of sharks as fish or a lot of aquarium uh, that do have sharks like zebra sharks and things that do lay eggs. Often you'll see a display that shows the eggs at the different stages and, and they'll be backlit. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but some of the aquaria, Virginia Beach Aquarium has this and, and some others where you can kind of see the developing uh, shark in the egg case. So a lot of people associate sharks again with fish, with egg laying. And, and the truth is many, many of the big ones from great whites to lemon sharks to reef sharks, they all hammerheads, all live birth. So we've got to talk <laughs> about <laughs> and, and help me out here if I'm mm-hmm. if pronouncing this wrong. For the, so it's sand tiger sharks in particular. Uh, yeah. Adelphophagy? That's right, yeah. Uh, okay. So this Literally is, means eating your brother. Yeah, <laughs> embryo cannibalism. And, and so my first question is one of my favorite things about your book is how you have the little fictional vignettes set up within the book. And I want to know why there wasn't an Adelphophagy vignette in there. <laughs> Really? (laughs) That would have been like the best horror movie ever. Well, you know, and it was so funny because there was a couple of these where I was, you know, I did start to write several vignettes that did not make it into the book because I just got to the point where I was like, I don't think people actually want to know at this level because it is it is gruesome. I mean, it really. So there were certain. Yeah. Certain uh, strategies that I said, we'll, we'll just leave it to the imagination. And I don't think I have to paint um, much more of a visual on this one. Well, instead of instead of doing that, can you walk our audience through why this occurs and how it benefits the mother sure. and the offspring? Absolutely. So and this is, you know, it's still a theory, but um, there's been some work, I'd say, over the last two to three years, um, much of it led by Dr. Damian Chapman. And the thing that you have to understand is shark sex, again, it's internal, right? Internal fertilization. And it's pretty rough. In fact, most female sharks have thicker skin, so they can deal with the fact that the males uh, bite down on them to hold them in place and roll them into place. Mm -hmm. So it's not a pleasant experience for the female. Um, She probably, and again, we can't really know, but in general for what we the limited amount of shark sex that we've actually been able to view in the wild, she doesn't seem to really, um, she would like to limit those encounters, right? Um, yeah. Shark, the male clasper, the male sex organ also often is barbed and hooked. Yep. We got notes about that in here. Yeah. So <laughs> again, for the female, like having multiple, multiple matings is not awesome. It, right. it does bring a true risk of um, being wounded, being injured, and also later infection from open cuts and things. So that's important to know because it basically means the female is incentivized to do whatever she can to limit how much mating she has to do. So with that as a context, what happens in the the sand tiger shark is amazing. So sharks have um, two uteri, a right and a left, you can think of it that way. And For sand tigers, they give birth to only two pups at a time uh, each season, and it's one from each uteri, and these pups are huge. They're about three foot long, and I think the females, you know, you might have a nine or ten foot female. So this is, you know, giving birth to a baby that is a third the length of your body. That's, That's a big offspring. 
Just the whole thing sounds awful for these poor lady sharks. <laughs> so that's a you know that's a big deal. Um, however, again, that means you have an offspring that is unlike. There's not a lot of stuff in the ocean that's going to eat a three foot long fish shark. That's a pretty sturdy offspring that can probably fend for itself pretty well. Okay, so to get an offspring that big, there's not a lot of room, and you need a lot of nutrients. Okay, so you have females who likely um, will benefit from not having to have multiple encounters with males. They want to limit that amount of sex. But at the same time, they want to make sure that, you know, that they're having a male um, who's, who's rather fit. Um, so what, what happened was, <laughs> what seems to happen is, and this is what Dr. Um, Chapman discovered kind of recently, he was able to look at um, – pregnant females that had been caught in some shark protection nets off the beaches of uh, South Africa. And so he had access to the pregnant mothers and the developing um, embryos. And he ran some, some tests, paternity tests in particular, to say, how many, how many males are these females actually mating with? And it turns out that they were mating with several males. So within each uterus, there were multiple embryos that had each been fathered by different sharks, by different males. However, there was always one, one of the embryos was over, always substantially larger than the others. And it seems that whoever this female mates with first, that guy, that male is fertilizing two eggs, one in each uterus. And those eggs are dropped, it seems, a little earlier and so these embryos, one in each, the right and the left, you right, they get um, they get a little bit of an advantage, and they're growing a little bit ahead of the next suite of eggs that seem to come along. And what this means is, and this is basically where it gets a little bit funky, is that if that female mates with with a male, she gets pregnant, again, one each, on each side. Then if she is approached by other males. She can mate with them again without really having to struggle or try to avoid that mating. So she can kind of um, perhaps allow that mating to happen in a way that maybe doesn't um, harm her as much. And those males then are fertilizing the next batch of eggs. But the next batch of eggs and the embryos that come of it never make it because the bigger embryos, the first guys, they actually hatch out of their little sacs inside the uterus and eat their siblings as they're developing. So it's all of their half-brothers or sisters. So what, what Dr. Chapman found was that when he did these paternity tests, not only did he find that there were multiple males for these different embryos, but more than half of the time, the two biggest embryos, one in each uterus, were from the same father. So those were full siblings. So it means that the male that gets to the female first, we think, has a better than average kind of chance of probably fertilizing that first batch of eggs. And those embryos are getting a growth advantage. The other way it may be working is that if it turns out that the male that's mating with the female or mating other males mating soon after, who's ever fitter, maybe their embryos are growing the fastest. Either way, the two largest embryos on either side, so only one of the males, only one male's offspring ever make it out into nature. And so it's 
it's kind of, it's a, I know it gets a little bit heady, but basically what you can think is for the female, this strategy means that she doesn't actually have to worry about who she mates with next because she's only going to give birth to that first male's offspring. And the rest are basically just fertilizing food for her developing embryos. So she's choosy with the first one and then the everybody choosy with the first. Yeah. And then she doesn't have to waste energy because it's very, it can be a lot of energy to either try to continually swim away from advancing males or to struggle against advancing males. Um, So what this does is it means that she can sort of be picky at first, but then after that, she doesn't really have to worry too much about the fact that maybe these males aren't the most fit or are going to, you know, be approaching her. She can kind of mate with them, maybe acquiesce a little and their offspring, their genes are not actually going to get out there and kind of mess up her offspring. Um, So it's this very, and we don't, again, this is very early stages, but what's very intriguing is if it was just random mating, if she was just mating with whoever, whenever, you would, it wouldn't see that the same male would constantly be fathering both of the biggest embryos. There would be a little bit more mixing up of, of whose, whose offspring wound up making it out into the world. So the fact that it's the full siblings from that, likely that first mating that got the growth advantage that then eat all the others mean that there, there could be an advantage there um, that the female's taking, um, taking on to say, okay, I'll mate with the first guy, be picky with him. And then after that, I don't really have to worry about it because these guys are just basically going to fertilize eggs that, that get eaten by my developing young. So yeah, it's pretty gnarly. And there's some pretty cool videos they've done um, with fiber optics uh, where you can go and if you Google sand tiger shark cannibalism and you'll see like in the womb, these guys, I mean, it is, they look like demon aliens. They have huge <laughs> eyes, these um, very well-formed teeth, and they, they crack out of their little egg case, and they go and they'll puncture the egg cases of all the other embryos, and they won't necessarily eat them right away. Right. They kill them first, right? And then they eat them over the course of weeks? Yeah, so that they can't, so that they can't grow and, and compete. So they kill them. Given all the, um, the the violence we've discussed in the, the the shark mating, I mean, it makes one think. Wouldn't yeah. it, wouldn't it be great if uh, if the females could just reproduce without the males being involved at all? Uh, which wouldn't le- it? Yeah, which leads to the next <laughs> question. Uh, uh, I was really amazed to read about this in your book. Either either I was not aware of this or I'd forgotten it. But uh, you you talk about how sharks are capable of uh, parthenogenesis, uh, sometimes referred to as virgin birth. So what do we know about that in sharks and, and why is it why is it difficult to study in the wild? This is one of my favorite active areas of research. So uh, over the past, I'd say maybe five, eight years, we've all of a sudden, um, and this is a lot to do with genetic tools that are able to show us this, this kind of information um, based on you know DNA samples. But we've found that at first it was, we saw it in Aquaria where a female that had been separated from a male for years and years and years, all of a sudden gave birth. And we know that females can store sperm for a really long time, like three years, four years. So at first it was assumed that this was a sperm storage thing. And in many cases it is, but we've also started to discover through again, better genetics that, 
that's not always the case. Sometimes they're doing virgin birth. And what virgin birth is, is it's where the female, the egg undergoes this really unique process where the egg itself kind of splits and then refuses with its split part and can form a viable offspring. So there's reshuffling of DNA, which is what happens with regular sex, normally between a, a egg and a sperm. But this time it's between an egg and kind of another part of the egg. And what it means is that you have a genetically unique offspring. It's not the same DNA code as the mother. Okay, so it's not a clone? It's not a... Like, it is not okay. a clone. Right. So this is really important because it's not... It's different than other kinds of asexual, you know, non-paired non reproduction, which is cloning, where you get a genetically identical individual. In this case, there is this reshuffling. You're just reshuffling within the mother's DNA options. So it's genetically unique, the offspring, but there's two things that are really important to note that, that happen in this process. One is that even though it's genetic reshuffling, it's still a less diverse amount of um, sort of new new genetic uh, blueprint than you would get if you had mixed a sperm and an egg, like two individuals, because you have a, you just have a smaller you know set of genes to to mix up because it's just the one mother's DNA that gets reshuffled, rather than a mother and a father. So it is uh, less diversity. In, in terms of over time, if these offspring were, were produced, they're, they're not as diverse genetically as um, they would be if they were through regular um, full sexual reproduction. The second thing is you can only have one sex because it's coming from the mother. The sex chromosome that she has is, in this case, like with sharks, it's like the equivalent of you can think of two X's. So that she only has those two. It's the same the same two sex chromosomes. So no matter how much you reshuffle, you're only going to get X's. So you only get females in sharks. So when this process happens, if you imagine it were to happen forever, like if all female sharks said, screw this, we can do parthenogenesis. We don't, we don't want males anymore. Over time, that species genetics um, diversity would decline and your sex ratio would get so skewed that eventually you'd, you'd be in big trouble. So it's an awesome, fascinating strategy that allowed a female to reproduce and likely is used when um, she can't find a mate easily. It does, in sharks, the ones that we know can do this, it's, it's um, called facultative parthenogenesis. And that means that it's by choice. She can also reproduce sexually. And we know that they do do that most of the time. So it seems to be a technique that she sort of calls on, perhaps when it's been really tough to find a mate. And part of what supports this is where we've seen it in the wild is in these um, endangered small tooth sawfish, where their populations have crashed over time. And we see that this, this level of parthenogenesis is, is very apparent when they've been doing these genetic sampling. And it's just the first time we've seen it in the wild. Part of the reason why it's so tricky is you have to be able to sample the pups and they like to be able, the scientists also like to be able to sample the same mother to really see like, is this the mother's DNA that's, that's getting, getting reshuffled? 
Um, I think the technique is getting better and better now so that they could go out and test for this just, just in young sharks and see um, uh, if, it's, if it's present. They're able now to kind of filter to see is there male DNA there. There are certain screens they can use. But um, it's, it's been very difficult to do that in the past. Um, so this is, again, a new tool that they're, they're just starting to develop. And um, where, where they have tested it and seen it, a positive result has been in this very highly endangered species or, again, in aquaria where the females have no access to males um, for a long time. So, yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's basically the female being like, well, I can't find a male. Might as well go for it myself. And uh, it seems to be in very uh, diverse it's only a handful of species that we know, but they're very diverse species. So it doesn't seem to be just in one group of sharks. Um, so that kind of makes us really curious regarding, um, yeah, how prevalent it could be and, and how often it's called upon. All right, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, more Shark Talk. So uh, we, we are putting this the podcast episode out around the same time as Shark Week. So we, we thought we'd ask you a few questions about Shark Week. Uh, so first sure. of all, did, did you grow up with Shark Week like, like we did, where it's just kind of this – because my earliest memories are just it's, it's on during the summer, and there's just all these shark programs. And so what do you do? You just watch a bunch of shark programs. Absolutely. I mean, I was – yes, I was hooked. And actually, I have to – I have my, my one – my 15 seconds of fame that we all get right was in the late nineties. I was on shark week. Oh, wow. I had a little clip where I got to, I was, I was taking a little baby lemon shark out of a net down at the shark lab in, in Bimini Bahamas with, with the legendary doc Gruber. So it was um, near and dear to my heart. Cause it was this show that actually, you know, this whole week dedicated to trying to show the science and amazing natural history of, of, these incredible animals. So I was, yeah, I'm, I was a huge fan. Um, again, back in, in the nineties and ah, it's interesting to see what's happened since. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's our understanding that this year, apparently a shark is going to race Michael Phelps, uh, on shark week this year. I don't yeah. know how they're going to pull I that know. off. I I've been hearing these rumors too. And I, I am, it's, it's really interesting to me because Phelps is fast for a human, right? Right, but I don't know. I mean, have you ever swum with a even like a butterfly fish? They're really fast. <laughs> yeah, I I was recently at the at the beach with my son, and we kept um, he kept telling me, "Oh, can you you've got to catch one of these fish that's in the surf?" And we had this little hokey <laughs> net, you know, and they're the just those little fish are so fast, so swift. There's just no catching them. Uh, so I, I can imagine that Phelps is just completely boned if he's going to race a, a great white shark. Yeah, I, I would. My money wouldn't be on Phelps for for several reasons, but I, I am curious about like how how they're going because also like sharks like they don't swim in straight lines. Where where is this? How how and why? Again, why is it just to show how? A simulation would be cool. I mean, it, I'd love to see a really neat animation of like, here's the fastest person, Michael Phelps. He could go this fast. A great white would do that in, you know, a tenth the time. But yeah, it'll be interesting because I can't find exactly what it's all about. It's just this, they've just been like seeding this rumor of Phelps versus great white. And uh, 
I kind of can't think of any anything except actually walking on land where Phelps may be a great white. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would that would be such a cruel twist, wouldn't it? If it turns out the race is on land, it actually turns oh. out that the way Michael Phelps reproduces is by having babies <laughs> eat his the eggs inside of him. That would be that would be very interesting, or maybe it's an opposable sum. <laughs> Unscrewing a jar lid, he'd probably win. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see. And again, if they're doing it as a way to kind of bring home an analogy of like how fast sharks are, then that's great um, because people have seen Phelps, and he's the fastest. I mean, he really is one of the. He's incredible for our species. What he can do in the water is amazing. And, and comparing that and showing how that is not even close to what a shark can do, that, that could be a really great way to help people appreciate just how, how fast these animals are and how perfectly designed they are for their environment. I mean, evolution has had hundreds of millions of years to fine tune the body shape of sharks. And if you look at their shape, it has not changed that much in that, that time. There's many different, you know, body shapes for sharks, but that general form for the ones that are free swimmers, you know, in, in the water column, not the ground sharks, they all have very similar things. And the Navy uses it to make their missiles go faster. And, you know, we we can certainly see um, how evolution has maximized that incredible predatory speed-oriented sleekness. We don't, we don't have it, even when you're wearing those really tight, suits. As far as Shark Week goes, and I guess not just Shark Week, but just sort of uh, our culture's uh, associations with sharks, our relationship with sharks, it it seems seems like it's uh, it's it's ultimately like a little bit challenging from a science communication standpoint because on one level, like everybody's still like a six year old kid inside with sharks to a certain extent. There's something about the ferocious shark that is is appealing, is is endlessly fascinating. It's it's a little bit scary, uh, and generally, you know, fun scary if you're not in the water, I guess. But then you do want to communicate these uh, these more important issues, like you know, what's going on besides biting a cage with the, with a the human in it, beyond you know, feeding uh, uh, you know, chum to to a shark and just watching its its uh, teeth snap. And you want to relate these important issues of conservation. Uh, to uh, the, the general public, uh, but but how do you? I mean, how do you end up weighing those two things? How do you how do you how do you proportion the informational meal? I, I imagine is uh, one way to put it. It's a great question, and I think as a community, whether it's the science communication community or the the shark science community, we're still trying to figure it out. The key is that. It's what you said at the beginning, right? We're all those excited six-year-olds inside where there is a fascination. Even if that fascination is strongly rooted in fear, it's a great way to get people engaged. I mean, there is a shark week because people want to learn about these animals. And I think where I get so frustrated with discovery and especially was appalled, I would say the last, you know, five years or so, they really, I think took a turn for the worst, though I do think they are trying to correct. Last year, I think, was a little bit better. But there's no need to play off the fear. The fear is there. The fascination is there. People will show up and they want to watch. So take it to the next step and use that as the doorway that opens up to this world of unbelievable natural history. 
whether you're talking about their reproduction, whether you're talking about their sensory systems, whether you're talking about their ancient lineage and evolution uh, in a water environment and, and all the things that they do that's different than fish. There's so much, whether you're talking about their role as apex predators in controlling an ecosystem, there, there is so much that is rooted in science and that we are learning all the time we don't need to make up and exaggerate it. There, there's no, there's just absolutely no, no need for fabrication. And that's why I was, I think, what has been so bewildering about the fact that they sort of, Shark Week took this sort of strange route towards exaggeration and to really hyperbole to the point of misrepresentation. It's not necessary. Because you're not, you don't have to attract people to watch this stuff. You really don't. People aren't genuinely curious. And what we are learning is unbelievable. I mean, the, the fact that you have some rays that produce a milk-like substance that they're developing embryos are nursing off of in the womb, that's fascinating. That's amazing. That Nobody awesome. knows that. We're still trying to figure out how they do it. What does that mean? Do you call it milk? Right. It's not in a mammal. <laughs> you could have so many cool conversations about this stuff. I mean, I, one of the, the articles I, I sort of um, wrote after the book, because I couldn't dig into it enough, is this amazing work by a guy named Dr. Jim Gelschleiter. And he he's trying to figure out, like, paternity tests work in sharks, but pregnancy tests don't. We cannot figure out how to make a pregnancy test for a shark. And it's because their, their hormones and their biological systems, their chemicals, are so different. They, they regulate their physiology so differently. We've done it for fish. We've done it for mammals. We cannot figure out how to do it for sharks. And it seems like paternity tests work. Pregnancy tests don't. That's fascinating. And it opens up a whole way of discussing not only why that is, but why that matters. If we can't figure out when these sharks are pregnant, how long they're pregnant for, how often they're getting pregnant, it's really hard to know what is appropriate management. How much can we fish? You can't answer that question. You can't know how many sharks to take out of the water if you don't know how many sharks they're reproducing to fill that gap each year. So th these are fundamental questions that deal with fascinating aspects of their natural history and biology. So there's so much to dig into that I think we can, we can use the fear, we can use that fascination to say, yeah, these are crazy, crazy predators, and they are really, really good at being predators. But one, you're weird in the ocean. <laughs> you know, like you're not a burger. You know, imagine if, if you eat, you know, burgers and salads and then somebody plunked down this thing in front of you that you've never seen before. It smells different. It, the texture's different. It's got weird dressing on it. Like you're probably not going to just dive in all gusto. Mm. Most sharks think, think we're weird. I have to say that uh, lately when I have gone into the ocean and uh, 
especially most recently because I, I I managed to glimpse a, a shark of some kind. I, I wasn't able to make out the species. But I think back to an episode of The Simpsons, I believe, where there's a brief clip <laughs> of a shark jumping out of the water and grabbing a gorilla out of a tree. <laughs> and then and, and it's just such an, you know, an unbelievable and ridiculous uh, scene. And I think, well, that's basically what's happening here. I am that gorilla and that shark has not evolved to 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 eat me. It hasn't. And I mean, when you think of the numbers of times people are in the water with sharks and nothing happens, I mean, more than half the time, we have no idea they're there. I mean, that's the truth. And they're not interested. They really, really aren't. When an accident occurs, it is tragic. Of course it is. And of course it's scary because we think, oh my gosh, this could happen. But, you know, the statistics on it speak for themselves. And most people's experiences, even those of us who want to go and see a shark, it's really hard to find them. And it's getting harder to find them. I mean, sharks are in big trouble. We we are overfishing them across the board. There are few species, so there are some small species, often like off the East Coast, they're known as dogfish, that are smaller. They reproduce a little more quickly, likely can sustain um, a, a fishery. But the big sharks, the hammerheads, the reef sharks, the great whites, those, they can't take the level of fishing pressure, whether it's targeted or accidental, that, that we've been putting out there. And they are, they are getting creamed and their numbers are plummeting. Um, and it's, it's really scary and it's really sad because it's, it's, it's not necessary. So that fear, I think, what I would love to see is a way to show that that fear should bring that healthy respect, which is the same that we carry when you go hiking in the woods and you think about being smart about bears, right? Do the things you can do to minimize the chance that you're going to um, invoke any kind of a, an attack. But otherwise, be excited if you're lucky enough to actually see one. It's a pretty special thing. So on the subject of, of shark conservation, uh, uh, where are we with shark conservation? Like, what are, what are, where, where are our victories and what are the, where are our failures and what are the challenges ahead? Yeah. So I'd say that, you know, I think the last few years have, have been a bit of a turning point, but it's, a, it's a very early stage turning point. So we've really got to keep the momentum. Um, the biggest driver of shark declines has actually been, the rise in Asia of, and especially China, of shark fin soup as a delicacy. This is a, a dish that is served at weddings, at, uh, you know, very fancy um, banquets, and it's a, a considered a sign of stature. Um, so it's a way of showing off, really. And there's no nutritional value in a shark fin at all. It's just, a, it's like eating your ear, right? It's just a bunch of cartilage. Doesn't doesn't have any nutritional value. And the method of harvest is extremely um, destructive and gruesome. So what, the, what shark finning involves is literally finning. So they will catch a shark, cut off its fins, and then throw the body back over. That way they don't have to worry about taking up storage room on ice with the bodies. So they're, the sharks obviously die. They can't, you know, they either bleed to death or they drown because they can't swim without their fins. And for many sharks, if they can't swim, they can't get enough oxygen and they, and they, I guess, suffocate. Um, 
So it's really gruesome. It's really wasteful because if you're going to kill a shark, you might as well eat the meat, right? Use the animal. And it doesn't feed people. It's not like this is going to, to feeding populations that need protein. So it's just wasteful across the board and a highly unsustainable practice. However, it is very lucrative. These shark fins set for very, very high prices. So one of the challenges we have is curbing that demand. There's some campaigns out there that are really trying to educate um, the consumer to say, don't have this at your weddings, don't have this at your banquets. This is not, not something to encourage. There have been very strong and some very successful campaigns to um, create policies that ban the sale and trade of shark fins. So this is happening in the States. There's several cities that um, have banned the, the import or trade of shark fins. There's also some really great advances in, um, again, in uh, DNA testing. So one of the hardest things is that once a fin is cut off a shark, it can be really hard to identify what shark that came from. Some of the most threatened species have gotten protection under CITES, which is the, the um, Conservation for the International Trade of Endangered Species, so C-I-T-E-S. And if, if it is found that somebody has a shark fin from one of those species, then they can be in really big trouble and there's huge fines. So internationally, there are tools that allow for prosecution, but it's been hard to prove which species a shark fin has come from. Now we have some better genetic tools that are allowing for this. And Dr. Deborah Abercrombie is one of the, the leads on this. She was working for a while out of Stony Brook University. Um, and, and she and a group of scientists there have, have helped create some kits that allow um, enforcement officers to test. So if they go and they, they see shark fins in a restaurant or in a warehouse, they can now go, even if that fin has, has really degraded, they can now go and test that product to see if um, it is from one of these banned species. And they've had great success in being able to now prosecute some of these illegal traders. So that's really positive. Um, the other victories that we're seeing are shark fishing bans. Shark sanctuaries are now um, really gaining traction. The first was set by Palau, the first national shark sanctuary. They banned all shark fishing in all their waters in 2009. Other uh, countries have since followed uh, Micronesia, New Caledonia, French Polynesia. Um, that's all in the Pacific. Then in the Caribbean, there's the Bahamas, the Cayman Islands, Honduras, um, the British Virgin Islands, I believe. So there's probably dozen, maybe maybe a little more, maybe 15 countries or networks of countries around the world that have started to ban shark fishing outright. And they're finding that and there's been one or two studies. I know there was one in Palau that looked at the economics of this and the value of a shark when it's fished and killed and sold for meat is far, far less than the value of that same shark on shark dives year after year after year. So people who now know that these places have healthy shark populations and want to go and see sharks, they pay a lot for that. And so these countries are actually realizing that if, if, you, if you want it in economic terms, there is good evidence that it makes good sense on a dollar value to keep your sharks alive. It makes your ecosystem healthier, and there are now booming ecotourism opportunities that can come with that. And oftentimes, there's um, the ability to retrain fishers uh, to 
be able to take advantage of this kind of different livelihood. And again, most of the time, these fishers are not fishing to feed themselves. That's not why they're fishing the sharks. It's, uh, it, it really can be a great way of seeing how ecotourism can be driving better conservation. And um, the economics are, are really on the side of protection when it, when it comes to those, those big uh, sanctuaries. And this is a last thought related to that. Part of why these large shark finning and also shark fishing bans can work is because we now have technology like satellites and drones that help these small island nations monitor and regulate these huge expanses of water that they never were able to do before. You know, they, they, there's no way Palau can patrol for illegal fishing in its waters using boats. They just can't. It's too, it, they can't enforce that. There's, I can't remember the number, but, you know, land size to water, is the ratio is not in their favor. But through things like Eyes on the Sea and um, Sky Truth, these are programs where NGOs have partnered with governments and foundations and um, the expertise of, of technology companies like Google to use satellites and start mapping fishing activity um, and drones to map fishing activity so that they can actually have early detection and, and deploy an enforcement boat very strategically when they know there's somebody in that area. And that has really changed the game across the board for illegal fishing. Um, and it's really, really exciting because these tools are, are, are critical to our ability to turn what used to just be on paper protections into actual protections. So I think there's a lot of victories, um, but still some very significant challenges. Yeah, from what you've told us today, it sounds like sharks have a lot more reason to have horror films about us than we have horror films about them eating us. And that, absolutely, that would be, I would, that's the horror movie I would want to write. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually hoping, you know, that the sensationalism of, the, the sort of, uh, symbology of sharks as killing machines starts going away soon. You know, I'm, this Phelps thing that we were talking about earlier, at least he's racing the shark. It's focused on the speed and not on right. something else, you know. So I'm hoping for that. I agree. And I think, you know, the one thing I can say is, especially with Shark Week, for, for all you listeners out there, write in and let them know that you like the programs that aren't just about the killing and the ferocious predator stuff. You like the interesting stuff on the science and the natural history, and you want to know more about how sharks do what they do, not just how they act as predators, because they're incredibly complex. And again, whether it's their sex lives or the way that they sense their environment, I, I mean, their, their history over time, their cultural, the myths and culture around sharks. I mean, all of that is fascinating. And, and I think the more we as as consumers of this information can show that we we really like all of it and we really like it to be grounded in real science and we don't need the sensationalism, the better. And then, of course, as scientists, I know we're watching and we need to continue to be really vigilant and, and hold, hold these kind of programs and especially Shark Week to a very, very high bar and make sure that um, we're calling out what may be misrepresentation or hyperbole so that we can continue to steer it back to a direction that it, it truly is informative and accurate. Um, so yeah, that would be my little soapbox speech. <laughs> Let them know you like the science. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. 
Well, uh, Mara, thanks again for joining us here on the show. Um, you, you, I think you and Mary Roach are the only people we've had on the show three times. So you're in a oh my elite goodness, club. Um, wow, that is like that's hugely. I'm super humbled by that. Thank you, and I, I love talking with you guys, and I just appreciate so much. I've been I obviously am a fan and listen to your podcast, and just love how diverse and how deep you guys go on topics. It's it's a really it's an awesome combination. So thank you for letting me be a part of it. All right. So there you have it. Another uh, fun, fascinating talk with Mara J. Hart. Every time we have her on the show, she uh, provides this wonderful conversation, just a just an, an outpouring of uh, marine biology uh, content. And if you want to look up those past uh, episodes of the podcast where we talk to her, I'll be sure to link to those on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. There'll also be a link out to uh, places where you can buy her book, Sex in the Sea. One of the best things about having Mara on as a guest, too, is that Mara engages with us on social media. So if you want to check out whatever inevitable conversation we end up having with her, or just see what she has to say after the episode airs, definitely look out for that. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. And don't forget to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where Robert's going to post that stuff on the landing page. That's where all of our blog posts exist, all of our videos, and every single podcast. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you want to share your shark stories, you want to share your experience with Shark Week. If you watch Shark Week this year, uh, give us some feedback. What do you think about it? How do you how do you think it lined up uh, with uh, some of the issues that we were discussing in this episode? Let us know. You can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank <laughs> you.